Oh, hi everybody, it's Steph. Hope you're doing well. This is Parenting Part 5. Sorry, Part 4 was mentioned as Part 5 last time. And this is a feedback from a parent, I believe, of four children, whose children are mostly older. And uh, I really appreciated this a very intelligent and helpful response. Uh, so I'll just read, uh, there are five comments that she has. I'll read them sort of in sequence and give my uh, thoughts on them uh, for each one. So she, she wrote, I just listened to the first of this series, the parenting, philosophical parenting. And I thought I'd post some comments, thoughts, questions I have as I listen to each one from the perspective of someone who's already done the parenting thing. One, I really like the focus on modeling the behavior you want to see in your kids. That's so important. If they observe you yelling or whatever, they will learn that behavior. It sounds like it's working so far, but I do want to caution that it's really not that difficult for the first one. It gets much harder if and when you add another variable to the experiment, siblings. If and when siblings come along, it's no longer just two mature adults working with one child, but you have to figure out how to manage the interactions of siblings who will not always interact in the non-aggressive ways one would hope they would. Uh, that is entirely, of course, correct. And uh, I am going to defer to this uh, wise woman's uh, thoughts on that and uh, say that, uh, yes, uh, I will not claim that it's a magic bullet. Sibling to sibling, of course, children, uh, impulsive impulse, um, <laughs> they lack impulse control and the ability to, to reason the consequences of their decisions and empathy gets off to a shaky start very often. So uh, agreed, agreed, agreed. And thank you for that uh, that point. Two, I like the idea of thinking about situations from the perspective of whether or not you think you could reasonably assume you would get permission after the fact because every parent will run into situations where they need to take control over a situation whether the child wants it or not. Otherwise, parenting wouldn't really end up being such a big deal. Very true. Three, she says, I may be wrong, but there seemed to be a contradiction of sorts in saying that the first year is vital to creating the environment and relationship needed. And yet, when talking about decisions made, where you sometimes have to do things that are aggressive in nature, one of the rationalizations is that the child is so young she won't remember. I'm a bit confused on that point. And that is excellent, excellent um, stuff. Uh, let me clarify this as far as, as I uh, my understanding goes, which obviously is not to the expert level, but a fairly well-informed layperson, I would say, by now, particularly with the fine instructors I've had in the interviews that I've done recently. Now, it certainly is true that children do not remember specific incidents from the first year or two of their life. I think, I think, I think. I, I have a memory of not... Uh, my first memory is when I was I certainly not able to stand. Uh, I was only able to sit upright. And uh, judging from where Isabella is, that probably was at about eight or nine months um, uh, because I, I was being teased and I couldn't get up and I couldn't get away. And I very much remember being sort of, I remember squatting in this little pyramid of unwieldy flesh, which was me sitting in myself when I could not get, get myself up and, and ambulatory. I think that's pretty unusual, though. I think most people don't remember back uh, quite that far. But um, uh, for the most part, I would say that memories start kicking in around two and a half or, or three years old, particularly when there's been an exception to some particular routine, like a trip or something like that. And so particular incidents, children don't remember, but the general pattern of interaction is engraved into the child's mind, right? So, so for instance, uh, if the child does not receive empathy, the child is much less likely to develop uh, empathy. That doesn't mean that the child can remember not receiving empathy, but it does mean that the brain follows after a particular pattern of non-empathetic interactions, to say the least. So uh, the way that I would sort of say that it would make sense is that if the baby does not receive enough nutrition, it's not like the baby can remember not receiving nutrition, can't remember being hungry or, or only being fed junk food or whatever. But the body shapes itself or is shaped based upon the lack of nutrition. And in the same way, the child may not remember specific incidents of negative or positive interactions, but the brain forms itself according to the pattern of those uh, of those interactions. And like all 
patterns, exceptions do not destroy the trend, right? So uh, to, to give a, a silly example, um, occasionally, like once a month, we will give Isabella, like we were at the mall the other day, and I had a, a sugar hankering, which actually turned out to be a bad idea because it made me <laughs> sleepy and grumpy. But uh, so every now and then I forget what sugar does. Uh, <laughs> so I had a sugar hankering and I, I bought a raisin oat milk cookie and I gave Isabella, uh, a sh- you, we can't eat anything without her wanting to try it. And uh, I can't really, <laughs> I can't really criticize her for that because I sort of understand she wants to, to imitate and to experience what we're experiencing. So I gave her a couple of morsels of the cookie and she seemed to like it. And then she had, I think two or three muscles and then uh, didn't want any more. And like all of us, it's uh, it's if you only ate cookies, right, that would be a very bad thing. Or if you only ate junk food, that would be a very bad thing. But, you know, it's not like one, I don't know, one cookie a month is going to give you diabetes, right? I mean, the general patterns allow for exceptions uh, and they may not actually be a bad thing at all. And so when sleep training Isabella, uh, she obviously goes, she went through difficulty and stress uh, and, and I would say probably even uh, something something close to trauma, if not actually trauma. I mean, it was very, very upsetting for her, and she would cry for half an hour or 40 minutes on occasion, uh, and uh, that's really unpleasant. But that was an exception in the general satisfaction of her wants, pleasures, and needs that she occurred. And so her psyche can could handle the exception to the general pattern and uh, it did not uh, it did not cause her to it did not cause her brain to rewire itself due to the repetition of that kind of stress and it's the same thing with you know a, a bite or two of cookie once a month does not cause her to become overweight or develop insulin resistance or anything like that so I hope that uh, clarifies at least my perspective uh, uh, on that. Uh, so just because a child, a child can't remember specific instances uh, does not mean that the general pattern of interactions is not hardwiring the brain in very many significant, in many many significant ways. Number four, uh, the woman writes, "I'm not sure I can agree with the statement that kids will more likely want to please a parent that focuses on the positive. Of course, that's preferable and much more pleasant for everyone, but the child will want to please the parent either way. It's important for their survival." Yes, uh, I think that's an excellent point. Uh, thank you for uh, for bringing it up. And my clarification on that, which I think is is needed, is that there is, there is a great difference between the uh, the pursuit of a positive and the avoidance of a negative. Right, the pursuit of a positive versus the avoidance of a negative. It's the difference between asking a woman out that you're attracted to and paying your taxes. Right. So one is the pursuit of a positive, and the other is avoidance of a negative, i.e., jail time. And really, that is the fundamental difference between voluntarism. And statism, uh, if, uh, if some, if you're a woman and some scumbag jumps you in an alley and you mace him off, you will come home feeling inordinate relief and, and perhaps even the joy of having escaped an attack. But, uh, it's not a joy that you really want. And so it's true that a parent will, uh, that the child will want to please the parents. But I think that, uh, stimulating excitement and positivity and enthusiasm in the parent is very different from avoiding punishment from the parent, avoiding attack or, or criticisms, uh, excessive criticisms and hostility and abuse perhaps from the parent. I think those two things are very different, but you're right. Either way, the child has to find some way to, quote, please the parents, whether that's the stimulation of a positive or the avoidan- avoidance of a negative, uh, I think is is very significant. Uh, it's very, very significant. Uh, but it is an important clarification, and I think that you're you're quite right. Thank you. And this, I think, was very interesting. This was a very interesting, these are all interesting points. Um, so five, I also think it's important to point out too much enthusiasm and praise of everything a child does can cause unintended harm because it can place too much emphasis on doing something because of the desire to gain the parent's approval. I've read somewhere, she writes, that taken too far, this can cause the child to not trust himself or to do things for 
or, or to do things for the genuine happiness outside of parental approval that can result from the behavior, not only because they have learned to rely on the crutch of parents' over-enthusiastic approval. Not saying that's happening here, just pointing out that there's a balance to everything. Well, I think that's quite right, but I think that I did address that in the original podcast because I pointed out that enthusiasm was the most foundational, quote, weapon in the parent's arsenal of behavior modification. And, of course, if you wildly praise everything the child does, then you're not differentiating between desired and non-desired behaviors. You would just be, I mean, praising everything, right? So, for instance, uh, if, uh, if Isabella does something like learn some new skill or correctly identify something um, or sing, like correctly identify something with a word that she's pointing at or, you know, sings a song back quite well, then that's something to, to praise and to be enthusiastic about. Because why? Because RTR. Because I am genuinely enthusiastic. I am not faking my enthusiasm. I genuinely am enthusiastic. However, when she reaches for the cord to a lamp, that is not approved behavior. That is obviously dangerous behavior uh, for a variety of reasons. And so I'm not going to wildly praise that. So uh, the important thing is that the, the praise is differentiated and it is genuine. Uh, when she, you know, for instance, when she, the first time she clapped along correctly to a song, I was very, very enthusiastic. And uh, why? Because I genuinely felt very enthusiastic and happy uh, when she does something that uh, is not uh, allowed then I'm not enthusiastic. So you want to, uh, I think you want to be genuine uh, in your enthusiasm. You're right. You don't want to pump it and you don't want to be wildly enthusiastic about everything that the child does. And to me, there's a there's a big difference, right? So the other day when she woke up, she wanted to play in her crib for a while. And uh, she have a video, I think, uh, about this. And she she likes to, you know, I put a little stuffed bear in her crib and then she uh, takes it and dumps it out and says, uh-oh, and she can do that for apparently approximately 2.3 eons. And so I tried to uh, to teach her to catch the bear. And sometimes she would catch it and sometimes, of course, she wouldn't catch it when I tossed the bear back to her. And when she caught the bear, of course, I was enthusiastic. Why? Because I genuinely felt uh, thrilled and excited that she had caught the bear. Now, when she didn't catch the bear, I would say, oh, so close. Not quite. And I didn't have the same level of enthusiasm. And I wasn't manipulating her. I was genuinely experiencing that she tried, which is a good thing, but she didn't succeed. So I wasn't quite as enthusiastic as if she had, because for obvious reasons. So I, I think that the nuance is very important. I think you want to be enthusiastic at the efforts, um, but you don't want to have the same enthusiasm for success and for failure. Why? Because she won't differentiate the two states, right? So if I'm equally enthusiastic, and maybe this is what this woman is getting at, if I'm equally enthusiastic about... Uh, Isabella's successes and her failures, then she actually won't differentiate between the two. She won't really understand that there is an emotional difference between success and failure. Uh, but there is still emotional approval for the attempt. Like I wouldn't say good try if she just sat there and the bear <laughs> bounced off her head, right? <laughs> That's terrible, right? But I wouldn't say good try. But if she genuinely strives to catch it and fails, then I will say good try. But I won't say yippee, well done, fantastic, well, you know, because that's not what has actually occurred. And I agree with you that she needs to know the difference. And uh, between, and of course, uh, I can't teach her the difference conceptually, but she needs to know that there is a difference between success and failure. And why? Also because she's feeling that too. I'm really validating her feelings. She's not going to be, uh, if she's trying to catch the ball, she's not going to feel as enthusiastic about uh, catching it if she has failed to catch it, right? She's not going to feel as enthusiastic about the interaction if she's failed at it. And so I really want to make sure that uh, that she that I'm mirroring back her experience of success and failure. So uh, so I hope that makes some sense, and I will talk about the rest in a second. So this last question or comment about whether if you overly praise a child, that child will become, in a sense, really addicted to that 
praise, I think is uh, is very, very important and speaks to the general question, really, which I think is at the core of this, of addiction. And based upon the conversations I've had with the experts in the field recently, it would seem, and this I think certainly jives with uh, FDR philosophy as a whole, or philosophy as a whole, hopefully it's not FDR philosophy, which is, well, what is, uh, what is addiction? Well, addiction is something that provides a temporary relief from symptoms while exacerbating the long-term underlying causes, right? So if you are in a state of anxiety um, and you have a drink and you feel better, then the problem is you're only adding or fueling your anxiety in the long run. So addiction is that which provides a short-term relief at the expense of uh, a long-term exacerbation of the underlying problem. It's a band-aid over an ever-widening wound. That, I think, is why addiction is so hard to stop because uh, every time you continue with it, uh, you're making the underlying cause of the addiction worse. And so it uh, becomes a significant problem. That's why bad habits are so hard to undo. Now, I believe that the fundamental issue around addiction is that addiction is so paralyzing and so embedded precisely because it is a substitute for a cure, right? It is a short-term substitute for a long-term cure, and which makes the problem worse, which is why it tends to continue and escalate and so on. And so it's hard for me to see... So, so sorry, the first thing is that you, addiction is that which solves an underlying and usually characterologic or fundamental stress or anxiety or depression or rage or whatever, right? It's a self-medication. In other words, something has to be dysfunctional first in order for addiction to take root. And addiction is the means of dealing with the symptoms in the short term, which makes the underlying problem worse. Sorry, I'll stop repeating that. <laughs> my, let's talk about my addiction to repeating things until I feel that they're clear in my head. But it's hard to see how enthusiasm for a child's success is anything which contributes to a pathology and therefore which contributes to a short-term self-medication of dependence. I think that's that's hard. It's hard for me to see. It doesn't mean it's not true. It just means it's hard for me to sort of understand because it's sort of like saying, well, if you really are in love with your spouse, then you will become needy and dependent. Well, that is saying that love is a kind of pathology that creates anxiety, dependence, addiction, and so on. And I don't really think that's the case. I don't think uh, I don't think that's the case because love is not a problem, and enthusiasm for your child, your child's successes, is not a problem. And since it's not a problem, it does not need to be self-medicated. It does not become addictive, if that makes any sense. Sniffing glue is a problem, right? Breathing oxygen is not uh, a problem, and therefore is not really addictive. I guess you could say it's kind of addictive in that we need it to live, but uh, it's not psychologically addictive. So I can't really see how a healthy and honest and open enthusiasm for my child's successes or for behavior that I you know, genuinely feel enthusiastic about is, uh, is problematic. In other words, how is she going to become dependent on something which is fundamentally healthy, honest, true, and, and positive? I just, I don't see how that can happen. And I think it's an interesting fear. I think it's an interesting fear. And uh, I think we're all kind of concerned about this, that an abundance of anything can create a dependence. But I think it's important to differentiate between an abundance of positives uh, and honest and so on and 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 fair. And, and as I said, I don't get enthusiastic when she fails to do something. I don't think a, a superabundance of positives creates addiction. Right? Addiction arises. Well, anyway, we don't have to. We don't have to uh, to mention it again. And so I don't. I just don't think that that fits into the same into the same category. It's sort of like saying that uh, if you 
if you really like philosophy, then it's going to become addictive and pathological and you're going to become dependent on it and, and so on, right? I just don't see that that's the case. To take another example, I think we all understand that uh, a moderate amount of exercise appropriate to your age is, is a healthy and positive thing. It keeps off depression, it keeps your health, it regulates your blood sugar or it promotes that regularity, promotes weight loss and maintenance uh, because muscle burns more calories in a resting state than non-muscle. And so I think we can all... We can all understand that a healthy exercise, uh, moderate amounts of healthy exercise is good. Maybe even excessive exercise, so to speak, can be good, particularly when you're younger. I think Alanis Morissette has taken up uh, long-distance running. I think she just completed her first marathon, and she says that it has uh, freed her from uh, depression. And that's a good thing. Now, that, I think we can all understand, is, is, is healthy and positive and in a way balanced, right? It's not like she's not eating because she's exercising. It's not like she's not taking care of her kids because she's exercising and so on. But I think we can all understand that the guy who goes to the gym five hours a day and builds himself up into some, you know, monster muscle machine and, you know, isn't a professional or whatever must be making up. It must be making up for something, right? There must be some underlying insecurity or um, body dysmorphism, dysmorphism, which an invalid view of your body like anorexics have. They perceive that they're fat when they're real thin. That there is a self-image problem, that there is a self-esteem problem, that there is a need for too muchness uh, on the other side of things, like in muscles or whatever, that that's, that that's a problem. Uh, in the same way, dressing uh, in an attractive manner is good. You know, dressing in, you know, <laughs> sort of hyper-slutty manner may not be as good. So uh, I think that we have to look beyond the surface of why people are doing things. And I'm not suggesting this woman isn't. I'm just sort of talking about my, my perspective. Uh, and I think that we have to understand that addiction does not arise out of too much of a good thing. Uh, addiction arises out of uh, self-medication to avoid the unpleasant feelings, and I think even more so, unpleasant decisions that arise out of self out of self-confrontation in the realm of trauma. Uh, addicts fundamentally are avoiding decision making; they're not avoiding feelings, because obviously they can manage their feelings of stress and anxiety. Because addiction is fundamentally self-management of stress and anxiety, and therefore you feel a lot of stress and anxiety. Think of a gambling addict. Right? He feels a huge amount of stress and anxiety. So it's not like he has a problem with stress and anxiety. What the addict has a problem with, in my opinion, is if he accepts the feelings uh, and accepts the trauma that lie at the root of the drive to self-medicate, then he's going to have to make decisions about the people in his life uh, and about more fundamentally than the people in his life, since we really can't make decisions about that. We make decisions about the level of honesty that we have in confronting those who have uh, harmed us and the level of self-honesty we have about how we feel about these people. And as a result, I think that it's important to differentiate between these two things. So I hope that uh, helps. I hope that makes some kind of sense. And uh, if I've uh, gone astray, uh, as always, please uh, do do let me know. Uh, I'm always eager and keen to uh, to improve, you know, the podcast. And of course, more importantly, the podcast, my parenting. So thank you so much to this lady who took the time to write in these, uh, I think, most excellent observations. And this, to me, is a is a respectful and civilized discourse. I mean, this is you know very different from you know people who just post and say uh, you just make basic logical errors everywhere. I mean, that's just rude and and silly, right? Especially without any proof. But this, you know, the the difference is that this is a civilized and respectful and uh, and logical debate about very very important topics. And I hope that uh, you know people said take a a look at this kind of interaction. And, uh, and recognize how much more positive it is and how much more enjoyable it is to exchange these ideas for the sake of mutual improvement of accuracy uh, and, and truth than other kind of silly, aggressive, immature displays uh, for one-upmanship. So another thing that I would mention in the context of whether or not children become dependent upon 
parental approval or other positive things that parents are providing. Again, I, I think that that's a possible misinterpretation with regards to what dependence means, at least in my context, <laughs> which is... <laughs> I love work with the balloons. Which is that with full parental support, it has been my experience that uh, Isabella wants to achieve independence. Right, so with full parental support, she wants to achieve independence. So one example is that you know we could not stop her from wanting to turn over, wanting to crawl, wanting to walk. She absolutely wanted to do that. And uh, in the same context, we uh, she went from 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 breast milk to um, uh, to bottle to uh, you know pasty foods to to foods as a whole. And she really, really, really wants to feed herself, right? So we're going through the challenges right now that she sometimes won't even eat unless <clears throat> she can feed herself. And the same thing is occurring, of course, with things like elevator buttons, right? That she wants to push the elevator buttons and she wants to do things that are uh, self-sustaining or self, uh, self-propelled, self I guess you could say. And I think that the idea that if you support your children fully, they will become dependent upon your support is not... Uh, I think it, it puts uh, the Aristotelian mean where the Aristotelian mean is not appropriate, right? So the Aristotelian mean, too little exercise is unhealthy, too much exercise is unhealthy, exercise in the middle is good. I don't think that support and encouragement for your children is, is subject to the same Aristotelian mean, right? The Aristotelian mean is not supposed to apply to virtues uh, like uh, courage or honesty. Actually, no, so courage is one because he considers an excess of courage to be foolhardiness and deficiency to be cowardice. But it doesn't apply to to good and bad things, right? So the Aristotelian mean for axe murdering is not a moderate amount of axe murdering. It is, uh, again, I'm not <laughs> suggesting this woman is saying that, but uh, I don't think the Aristotelian mean, which we all have kind of embedded within us, I mean, this comes out of uh, Hegelian dialectical materialism as well, like that there's thesis, there's antithesis, and then there's synthesis, right? So the thesis is uh, we should always support our children. The antithesis is we should never support our children. And times in the middle, it's like, well, we should judiciously support our children. Another word that's tough to say when you're drunk or your face is cold, judiciously. Still, I'm having better luck than I did with the... What was that word? I simply could not say say in the Sunday show the other day. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. So it has been my experience that as a parent, full support is like the base for the rocket that wants to take off, right? The rocket, the rocket, like the, the space shuttle can't take off if it's housed in a swamp, right? Because it's just going to sort of bubble and sink. So, uh, uh, and it can't take off if it's housed in air because it's just going to fall and crash. But if it, has, if it has a stable base, then it can take off. And in my experience, the full support of Isabella uh, is something that she actually wants to discard after a while, right? So we sort of give her, quote, full support by feeding her everything. And she very quickly tires of that and wants to uh, feed herself and, and becomes very adamant about wanting to feed herself. So it's been my experience that full support and encouragement and enthusiasm produces a freedom from dependency on parents and, in fact, a very strong desire to achieve independence from parental help. And I think that's something that is, uh, I, I'm not sure the degree to which this woman is, is, uh, arguing against that or, you know, please, please feel free to clarify. And I do apologize if I've mischaracterized any of your intention, but it has been my experience that full support 
breeds a very strong desire towards independence. And this to me makes sense, right? Because that is a kind of closure, right? Closure is when you've had enough of something, right? You move to uh, a, a higher level of mathematical study when you have fully absorbed and understood and influent with the basic levels. Uh, or you, you know, go to fourth level French when you fully mastered, or at least largely mastered third level French, and you know that it's time to move on. So... I, I think that, that that issue of closure is very important, and if you don't get enough, then I think it's very tough to get to get closure, right? If you, if you don't get enough parental support, or if you feel that it's inconsistent sometimes there and sometimes not, then you're like that rocket that's on a on shifting ground. You're afraid to hit the launch button because you don't feel that you have full support. We were just reviewing the photos that we took when we were in holiday in uh, Mexico. And we were just commenting last night just how amazing it is that I mean, we took our daughter to a completely new room, new environment, new, you know, temperature, new. She'd never been to the, uh, the sea before. Um, and, uh, uh, she was, uh, perfectly comfortable, showed no discomfort, no anxiety, no fear, um, with a completely new and unfamiliar environment. And, you know, our, our belief is that, uh, at least my belief is that that occurs because of the security of the bond with her parents, right? So with that stable and unquestioning and fully supportive base, she is, uh, she is able to, um, uh, to sort of explore. And uh, I think that's, uh, I think that's important, uh, to feel confidence in new situations. And so she is less dependent upon parental support the more that she gets because she naturally wants to peel away from it. And she has internalized it, right? The whole point, uh, is to internalize things, right? So, uh, this is true of training any, any animal, right? <laughs> to sort of put it as training, but there's a certain element to the, of that. Which is that you, you know, repetition breeds the internalization of the principle and then the uh, the child can uh, act on that principle as internalized. And uh, if it is consistently applied the principle, then the child is no longer dependent upon the external nature of that principle because it's been fully and completely internalized. In the same way that if you've been really competently trained to speak a certain language, you, you become independent of the teacher. You become independent of the translator. You don't need the translator anymore because you fully internalize that language. But it takes, you know, consistency, uh, and, uh, and so on. So it's, you know, that, that's sort of my, my recommendation, you know, just be fully and blindly supportive, not blindly, but fully and enthusiastically supportive and honest. And then you will find that your child will want to go off and do his or her own thing, uh, as, as time moves forward. Yeah. What can you see, boo boo? It's a mystery. You know, the other thing, too, I, I wanted to mention this is not specific to, to this uh, email, but I just wanted to mention it. There have been very, very few times I, I can think of I can think of two off the top of my head where I felt genuinely impatient and frustrated uh, as a parent. And what happened the other day, and it really did remind me just how important principles are and how important that fork in the road is as a parent, right? or as anybody, really, I suppose. But um, it was uh, the other day. I was trying to change her, and she'd been uh, difficult, difficult to change, which doesn't mean that she was, you know, trying to be difficult or anything, but she was uh, difficult to change. And she was sort of twisting. I had to get her, uh, her jeans on. There was a time pressure, and I, I found myself just about to say, you know, oh, Isabella, you know, stop it. You know, I, I really felt myself, like, bubbled up. I was just about to say it. And then I thought, no, 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 no. It's not her responsibility to be good on the change table. It's your responsibility as the parent to find a way to make this a more positive experience for her. So, of course, uh, she's been uh, completely enthusiastic recently about fake sneezing. Or I don't know if she even knows that it's fake, right? But uh, we pretend, ah, uh, ah, uh, uh, and we pretend to sneeze, and she's completely delighted by it. And the way that that we can, uh, or the way that I can get her to sort of have a fun time and change her 
uh, mood, if she's uh, fussed or, or difficult in a difficult uh, situation, is to start going, ah, 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 and she will uh, immediately start smiling in anticipation of the fake sneeze. And so instead of the snapping, which was bubbling up, right, I uh, made the choice to do the ah, 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 and it was not easy in that moment to switch over to that. But I, that's the kind of stuff that I just think is so important. Thanks again for listening, as always.